Has it only been a week? I mean, it's pretty amazing the news flow, isn't it? COVID definitely feels like it's in the rearview mirror at this point as we sit on the verge of what some people are calling World War III. It's not the verge, Adrian. It's already begun. That's what some people are saying. I mean, I just hope they can dial it back, but I, I, actually, I have very little hope that they will. Ursula von der Leyen, the EU president of the EU, com- the EU commissioner, is out there saying that Ukraine belongs to us. The Ukrainian president has not dialed back his ambition to join the EU or NATO. You know, it seems to me the only off-ramp here for Vlad, for Mad Vlad, the only off-ramp is that Ukraine accepts neutrality and that basically Russia leaves and Ukraine and NATO say no NATO, which probably will not happen anyway. I mean, it's a very unimaginable situation as far as I'm concerned. Everybody has their opinion, and I'm just sharing my opinion on this because that's what we do here. We discuss the markets and where we are, and that is my job as host to basically discuss where we are and my take on it. So I am not lording this over you as how you should think, obviously. This is simply an opinion. But the only off-ramp I see here is basically Ukraine agreeing to not join the EU and NATO and Ukraine saying there will be no NATO. And, you know, like Ursula von der Leyen, I mean, she had to walk back her comments that Ukraine belongs to us, you know, Less than a day after Putin does the nuclear warning, she's out there saying, like, and during peace talks, they're so, I mean, it's wartime. Everybody is like emotional on these things, but I just don't see a way out. Like, to me, it's like there's no lesson that's been learned here. People thought that Russia would not go into Ukraine, they did. That's how seriously they take this. Now, this may be a pretext. This whole NATO expansion may be a pretext. And for all I know, it's a good idea. I don't see it that way, though. I I see it as asking for trouble in the same way that if Russia was to make a military alliance with Mexico, that the U.S. would not accept that. And, you know, I've been listening to these lectures on geopolitics so that I can be slightly more informed here. And like the Monroe Doctrine, the the U.S. doesn't even allow like major military powers to make any alliance in the whole Western Hemisphere, much less, you know, Mexico. And here we're going right up to the border. I mean, it's a hot topic. And I don't want to defend, you know, a murderous authoritarian tyrant. That, That is not my goal here. And let there be no question that obviously we are rooting for Ukraine here. What I am questioning is the whole the whole strategy and the whole mindset to me is leading to war and to more war. And Ursula von der Leyen gets out there and says Ukraine belongs to us. Like in my world, I don't doubt that Putin will use nukes to prevent that. So where is this going? At what point will the West dial things back and say, you know what, neutrality, we're 
Ukraine is a strategically neutral country between the West, NATO, and Russia. And if Russia is willing to accept that, and then there's Crimea, and people are saying, oh, okay, well, and then Russia is saying they want Crimea. You know what? At this point, they already have Crimea. You know, you could call that appeasement. I say it's worth a shot. And then if that's not enough for Mad Vlad at this point, fine, we're at war. Okay. But to me, this is not some massive compromise that needs to occur here from my perspective and where the Ukrainians can basically keep their sovereignty in a realistic way. And this is the thing. This is realism. Now, again, that's just my view, and that's it. Like, I mean, I think we all want the same thing, which is the war to stop. So let's not get bogged down in, you know, blaming each other and who's right and who's wrong. But, you know, everybody is doing what they feel is best, including Ursula von der Leyen and the president of Ukraine. Okay, they probably think that joining the EU will protect Ukraine and that joining NATO will protect Ukraine. It's my view that it's going to, you know, unfortunately, it's going to lead to probably nukes. And I know that sounds insane, but people doubted Putin, you know, that he was actually going to go in to Ukraine. And now are we going to start doubting? Are you going to take that risk of underestimating He looks a little unhinged. He looks emotional. How far, like, are we willing to push this to find out? Anyway, now, turning to the markets, what an interesting day from Bitcoin. Remember last week where gold made the move on the day of the invasion or the entry into the east, into those two territories, and gold performed very well while Bitcoin performed like the NASDAQ. Remember that? And I think myself and commentators, I started seeing commentators the next day saying the same thing as me, which is maybe Bitcoin is not digital gold. Maybe it's not digital gold. So much for that thesis, because gold is doing what gold does in these matters, and Bitcoin's acting like the NASDAQ. However, post-sanctions... After all these sanctions are implemented, if you look on CNBC, what do you see for Bitcoin? I mean, I think it like says 4 or 7%. Yeah, it says 4.3% uh, up. But I look on CoinGecko, which is where a lot of the crypto people will look, and they measure it 24 hours, and Bitcoin in the last 24 hours is up 14%. So what does that tell us? You know what I think we can conclude? Because, hey, this is a debate that's been going on for over a year now, this whole Bitcoin versus gold debate. And I think what we can conclude from this is that Bitcoin is its own thing. Bitcoin is its own thing. Because what is going on with Bitcoin right now? It looks like, if we had to guess, that the Russian oligarchs and just Russian probably people in general, and maybe Ukrainians too, for all we know. But if I had to guess what's going on there, it's probably Russian money that's going into Bitcoin. Okay, so, 
and they're not putting it into gold. They want something that's easier to carry around. It really is an alternative currency. Like it gets listed as a commodity in the U.S., but it kind of really is, at least I would argue, the way it's acting now. It's really acting as an alternate currency. It's a parallel financial system. So that's super interesting. Industrial commodities, industrial commodities are elevated, but they haven't actually gone through the roof yet. They remain elevated. They remain high, as we'll see in the metal section, uh, but they haven't actually gone through the roof yet. U.S. Treasuries, the 10-year bond, is at 1.84%. So what that would tell me is it's a bit of a risk-off environment. Remember, Treasury yields... When we get the COVID crash, they almost fell to zero, okay? 0% yield on the 10-year bond. I think they went down to like 0.2, 0.19, something like that, right? Now they're at 1.84%, down from 2% last week. So they are coming down in what looks like a bit of a risk-off trade. And so we think of our other massive discussion here with the Fed and inflation, and what does that mean for them? Does that make their job easier or harder? And I was thinking about this, and should we enter a risk-off environment? That is traditionally when the central bank likes to print, right? That's when they like to do quantitative easing, add liquidity, you know, soften the blow of whatever financial hit is happening. However, in today's environment, that has become unfeasible because of the perception, real or otherwise, that this money printing, so-called, is creating inflation. And as we see from our metal prices, our metal prices remain high, elevated, even a little higher than last week on most of them, barely. I mean, I think we should be grateful. That's all we see so far. So to me, that says that the Fed you know, in a only in a worst case scenario can they print, but it's 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 hard to imagine a scenario where the Fed can print right now. Right now they're trying to tighten, they're trying to reduce inflation. So we're in a very precarious environment, just to state the obvious. So it's just quickly before we take a look at this week's show, let's just quickly take a look at oil. in West Texas, $101 in Brent crude. Nat gas only at $4.44. Not terrible. Gold's at $1,915. Copper, $4.53. So it's interesting. It seems to me like the oligarchs and just people in Russia are fleeing to Bitcoin, not to gold. So very very interesting. Coming up on this week's show, we have Anglo-American CEO Mark Kutafani, and he was the feature speaker at last week's Global Mining Symposium, if you caught that. And so we're going to feature it. He is in conversation with Henry Lazenby, and it was a nice just profile on how this CEO of a major mining company is seeing the world, seeing commodities, seeing ESG and really what the message of the mining industry should be, where he was saying, you know, we need to reimagine mining to improve people's lives. Something I think we can say we've heard before, which is 
that the mining industry really needs to highlight how it's helping the world. I'm actually not as convinced personally that that is going to be the message that I think people know that, but I don't think they care. But I think to me, the, the message is we are the stewards of the environment in the same way that the uranium industry has done that. To me, that is a winning thing that, no, in fact, we're the people who are going to solve climate change, and then you're going to get people. But I, I think this argument that you know we are responsible for everything in your immediate surroundings, I, I think this has been around for 50 years, maybe longer, this argument. So listen to Mark Kudafani, though, because he has, there's, you know, I'm oversimplifying what he said there, and it's a very, very interesting discussion. So that is coming up, and we got some big news stories as well. I hope you are doing well in this challenging environment. I tell you, it's interesting to be out here in Europe. I mean, I went to an art opening on Saturday, and my friend Daniel, he's Ukrainian, he just happened to have a flight out on the Wednesday night, and it was Thursday at 5 a.m. that they said no more males between the age of 20 and 60 can leave the country. And he was saying, you know, originally I was going to get my flight on a Thursday, but I decided for the Wednesday because I saved 20 bucks, so why not go? <laughs> you know, it's pretty crazy because he could be there for quite a long time had he not made that flight. So, you know, it, it gets real when you start hearing stories like that in this, you know, David and Goliath battle. And, you know, for everything I've said about, you know, how I kind of think there's some issues, I think there's huge communication issues. Like these, Putin's from a different world. He's from the 19th century, arguably, in this realistic realism politics, great power politics. And, you know, Ursula von der Leyen and, the president of Ukraine kind of just wondering, like, why not? Why can't Ukraine join Europe? I think we do have to give the Ukrainian president and the Ukrainian people a lot of credit for the bravery, which has inspired the world in this, you know, David versus Goliath battle that's going on here. And finally, from this whole realistic view, like, why do I think that Europe is really helping Ukraine? I think there's a moral imperative. Again, I would say that's the surface content. That's the rational reasons is we have to help Ukraine. I think the underlying reason is kind of ironically is Europe doesn't want Russia on its border. I think that's the real reason that they are willing to risk really upsetting Russia right now, who's warning them and saying there will be consequences, where Europe is just more than happy to feed as many weapons as they can, keep them off our border. Here you guys go. So, yeah. So, if you want to find us online, find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, Russian metal exports slide as sanctions hit commodity financing. It's by Bloomberg News via mining.com. So let's see what's going on in the metals markets. As a result of all this, Russia's industrial metal exports are sinking. 
As the country's invasion of Ukraine prompts commodity buyers and financiers to pull back from its powerhouse producers, according to executives and analysts tracking trade flows, the nation's top steelmakers have seen exports drop since the incursion began. While nickel shipments have also been affected, people with knowledge of the matter said, while the response to Russia's actions differs from country to country, Germany has halted almost all steel purchases. One of the people said, asking not to be named given the commercially sensitive nature of the transactions. With Russia among the top five global producers of steel, nickel, and aluminum, reduced metal shipments threaten to further tighten a market that's already short on supply. While metals haven't been directly targeted by sanctions, prices are surging on concern that the latest measures could snarl payments to suppliers and spur banks to rein in financing for purchases of Russian goods. Russia's metal shipments are falling and buyers are, quote, hesitant in the context of sanctions, uncertainty, and escalations. And, quote, Goldman Sachs Group analysts said in a note, and they continue, quote, with materially reduced export volume out of Russia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan, all the base metal markets will face accelerated tightening in the near term. They said without specifying how they're tracking trade flows. Some shippers are refusing to transport Russian commodities, such as nickel, but the impact on volume so far has been minor. Another person familiar with the matter said, MMC Norlisk Nickel is Russia's only producer of nickel. And we have a quote from a Nornickel spokesman. Quote, our operations are proceeding as usual. We continue to meet all our contractual obligations and remain committed to our clients and partners. Nickel futures on the LME surged as much as 3% on Monday, giving up gains later in the day to settle 0.3% lower at $24.28 a metric ton. So, yeah, I mean, and here's aluminum also soared as much as 5% to a fresh record before retreating to settle 0.3% higher. And this is what we're noting a little bit in the introduction, which is that Industrial metal prices are higher, and they were already elevated, but they haven't gone crazy. But you see, earlier in the day, they were starting to go a tiny bit crazy. Continuing on, banks were already limiting their exposure to Russian shipments before this weekend's further round of sanctions, which excludes some Russian banks from the SWIFT messaging system, and also penalize the country's central bank. At least two of China's largest state-owned lenders are restricting financing for purchases of Russian commodities underscoring the limits of Beijing's pledge to maintain economic ties with one of its most important strategic partners. So you can read the whole thing on mining.com, but you can see these sanctions are starting to have an effect. And Russia-focused miners have dropped dramatically on the invasion. It's by Cecilia Jamazmi. On northernminer.com, shares in mining companies with operations in Russia were among the first to feel the impact of Moscow's wide-ranging attack on Ukraine. And this was written on February 24th, by the way. While oil topped $105 a barrel and investors rushed to buy gold and other safe havens. This is last week. The local exchange suspended trading in all markets following President Vladimir Putin's announcement of military operations against Ukraine. Once it resumed, the share prices of companies nosedived as investors braced for the toughest round of Western sanctions yet. Al Rosa, the world's top diamond producer by output, lost more than 40% mid-morning, closing 33.7% lower compared to its price on February 23rd. Gold miner Polymetal experienced massive losses in all bursts it trades, finishing the day 35% lower in Moscow. It posted the largest fall in the FTSE 100 index, losing over 46% of its share value to 594 pounds mid-afternoon. That's below a four-year low of the 605 pound a share it hit in October 2018. 
Polymetal put out a statement, quote, the scope and impact of new potential sanctions is yet unknown. However, they might affect key Russian financial institutions as well as mining companies. Contingency planning has been initiated proactively to ensure business continuity, including the selection of key equipment suppliers, liquidity management, debt portfolio diversification, and securing sales channels. Shares in London-based gold producer Petro Pavlovsk were trading near a three-year low by mid-afternoon at £9.43 per piece. And finally, shares in other Russian miners, including potash producer Ural Kali and Gazprom, the country's biggest stock by market capitalization, also collapsed on Thursday as the ruble hit its lowest ever level against the U.S. dollar. So, yeah, I mean, a bit of last week's news there, but you can see the impact on stocks. Shifting gears, kind of a big news in the gold sector, Tony McCook, he resigned after two weeks as CEO at Ignico Eagle. This is by Henry Lazenby. And this came as a very big surprise. A little more than two weeks following the closure of the $10 billion merger of Ignico Eagle Mines and Kirkland Lake Gold, Ignico's new CEO, Tony McCook, has resigned, handing the reins to the incoming president and CEO, Amar Al-Jundi, with immediate effect. Under terms of the merger that created the world's third largest gold producer, Ignico Eagle CEO Sean Boyd became executive chair of the board. At the same time, Kirkland Lake Gold CEO Tony McCook was installed as the company's chief executive. You know, Ignico Eagle has always been a slow and steady kind of company. And frankly, it's reflected in the share price. And you saw Kirkland Lake Gold have an epic move. I think it was like from $3 to $60 in just two or three years. So you wonder if the management styles collided with each other. Aljuni brings to the table more than 20 years of experience in mining, capital markets, and banking with specialization in finance and business strategy. And McCook released a statement, we built Kirkland Lake Gold by acquiring, developing, and operating high-quality assets in good jurisdictions with significant exploration upside. Just as important, we built a business based on honesty, integrity, respect for all people, and support for communities. We have culminated all this with the merger of equals with Ignico Eagle, and I'm very proud to have been involved in creating the third largest global gold producer in the world. I'm leaving Ignico with a strong and dedicated leadership team, and I believe they will continue to be successful. I would like to thank the tremendous team of people at Kirkland Lake Gold for their years of hard work and support in building a truly special company. So something happened. It's pretty hard to imagine under any circumstances that you would leave after two weeks unless things were not going well. And it sounded like just an immediate resignation. I'm out of here. Enough. So very interesting. Very, very interesting. Uh, Turning to another story, Donlin Gold drills high grade for Barrick and Nova Gold. So Donlin Gold is a JV and I believe it's a 50-50. It's an equal partnership of Barrick Gold and Nova Gold Resources. They got some pretty nice drill results. This is near Anchorage, Alaska, 450 kilometers northwest of Anchorage, Alaska. Highlights from the best intercepts included 19 meters grading 18 grams gold per ton, 77.6 meters grading 3.5 golds per ton, and 43 meters grading 5 grams gold per ton, and so on. So they are planning $60 million in spending at Donlin this year. So they are going full speed ahead at Donlin. That is a lot of money. And turning to our next story, Chile's leanest January since 2011 is another bullish copper sign. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Chile, the biggest copper producing country, just recorded its lowest January output since 2011. 
In the latest bullish sign for global metal markets, production tumbled 15% last month from December and 7.5% from January 2021. The Bureau of Statistics reported Monday without giving a clear reason for the drop. Chilean output is typically lower in the new year and can ebb and flow depending on whether mines are encountering sections of higher or lower quality ore, but there may be more to January's modest haul of 429,000 metric tons. And then it goes on to mention pandemic, water scarcity as potential reasons. So you can find that on mining.com. Speaking of copper, BHP invests $100 million in South America-focused Philo Mining. It's by Cecilia Jamasmi. BHP, which has been expanding its copper footprint, will invest $100 million in Philo Mining. The Canadian junior is developing a copper-gold-silver project straddling the border between Argentina and Chile. Once the private placement is completed, which is expected to happen on or before March 11th, BHP will own about 5% of Philo Mining and will be granted certain participation and top-up rights, the company said. The the junior plans to use funds for further exploration and development of its Philo del Sol project. According to London Mining, Philo Mining's majority owner, the project is expected to be an operation of equal size or bigger than its Candelaria mine in Chile. Chairman Lucas Lundin has said that building Philo del Sol will cost between $4 billion and $5 billion. So pretty interesting. I guess that's a pretty massive project over there. And finally, strong diamond demand boosts Lacara revenue and Petra sales. And this is something that came up in the interview with Mark Kudafani this idea of diamonds making a comeback. We have seen several stories, and Henry asks about this tension between lab-grown diamonds and organic diamonds, I guess we'd call them. And it's pretty interesting, actually, what Mark Kudafani has to say in contrasting the two. And so we are seeing increased sales in diamonds. South Africa's Petra said it had obtained $110 million after selling about 80% of the volume of diamonds offered during its fourth tender cycle for its 2022 financial year and in June 30th. Canada's Lucera showed a revenue increase of 84% to $230 million, which it attributed to strong diamond market fundamentals. The miners said the global market for rough stones and diamond jewelry had reached a healthy balance. It also expected the positive trend to continue in years to come. And we have a quote from Ira Thomas, who is CEO and president of Lacara. 2021 was a pivotal year for Lacara, having de-risked our future growth strategy with the sanction of the fully financed Caro underground expansion project, conservatively estimated to add $4 billion to future revenues and extend mine life to at least 2040. So, you know, as the world turns... Diamonds are back from the dead. I remember four years ago, people thought this lab-grown diamond thing was going to pose a real problem. But Mark Kudafani will say otherwise in our upcoming interview. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on Tuesday, March 1st, gold is trading at $1,904.96 per ounce. 
That is $8 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $24.37 per ounce. That is $0.37 higher. Platinum is trading at $1,048.09 per ounce. That is $35 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,493.87 per ounce. That is $113 higher and very close to some of its more higher levels, although Platinum goes all the way up almost to like $2,900, $3,000. You know, half a year to a year ago, it was getting pretty high up there. So it's starting to climb again. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is $0.04 cents lower at $4.50 per pound. Aluminum is at $1.52 per pound. That is $0.02 cents higher. Lead is unchanged at $1.07 per pound. Nickel is $0.09 cents higher at $11.20 per pound. Tin is $0.47 cents higher at $20.50 per pound. Cobalt is also higher at $33.33 per pound. That is $0.60 cents higher than last week. And zinc is a penny lower at $1.65 per pound. So as we were saying, industrial metals remain elevated, we might say, and a bit higher, a bit lower, but basically hovering near their elevated levels and gold and silver shoot up on geopolitical uncertainty and palladium up, platinum down, so a bit of a mixed bag in the PGMs. So nothing too surprising. If anything, I think we can be grateful that industrial metals aren't higher than they are, but maybe it's this combination of Yeah, there's supply concerns, so that would raise the price of the metals. But if there is a de-risking and a risk-off environment, then maybe less economic activity, therefore, equals less demand, perhaps, and therefore lower prices. So industrial commodities may be feeling this kind of tension from both sides. And those are your metal prices. And this week's feature content features Mark Kudafani, Anglo-American Chief Executive Officer, in conversation with Northern Miners Senior Reporter Henry Lazenby at last week's Global Mining Symposium. And Mark discusses the outlook for commodities, including his view on diamonds, which is super interesting, lab-created diamonds versus, I guess, what we'd call organic diamonds, and also on copper, and also on potash, and other key commodities, and he also addresses ESG and where he thinks the whole industry is heading as far as the ESG discussion is concerned, and what message he thinks the mining industry should broadcast to the rest of the world about its importance and the role it plays in society. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Great pleasure to introduce Mark Kirifani, the CEO of Anglo-American PLC since 2013. Mark is a qualified mining engineer with more than 45 years of broad experience on projects, operations, marketing, business development, and finance. Mark is also the chairman of the De Beers Group of Companies, a non-executive director of Total SA, and a non-executive director of Anglo-American Platinum Limited. Mark has considerable experience in mining 
and have been associated with the industry since 1976. He has practical working knowledge of the most commodities produced and sold across the world. He also has had line experience and responsibility for mining and industrial business across six continents. Prior to joining Anglo-American, he held the position of Chief Executive at Anglo Gold Ashanti, based in South Africa. And before that, he was COO for Inco and then Vale's Global Nickel Business, based out of Canada. Welcome, Mark. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks, Henry. Great to be here. So let's start off by reviewing the company's fourth quarter and full year operating results. Let's look at key operating highlights, including diamonds and PGMs, which seem to have been particularly important for the company through the year, as well as iron ore and copper. Look, I think the precious metals or the PGM story has been very important. We had quite a few operating challenges in 2020, and then we had COVID. So the recovery last year was particularly important. Record production out of our refinery. So very solid production and sales of very good prices. So a great year for, for the business, a record year, in fact. Diamonds, also a recovery story. And we also spent quite a bit of money marketing products. So we've seen as of the last month, about a 30% increase in the prices for diamonds over the last 14 months. So that's been a, a really important improvement story through the year. And then we've had pretty solid results from copper and iron ore, and they've been doing pretty well over the last few years. But with good prices, it, it makes it all the better. So generally solid, not as good as we could be. I think in looking at COVID and those sorts of things, probably a 5% impact on our production. But generally, very good year, good, solid prices, and uh, I'd expect... Uh, based on uh, consensus numbers, if I just talk to consensus, that we will show our best ever operating results of the business. And uh, certainly uh, we can do a lot better, but I'm sure you'll probably ask me a few more questions about those sorts of things a little bit later. Yes, absolutely. All right, so let's start with some broad themes and unpack Anglo-American story via that. So the energy transition is our topic at present, and the company has been signaling its strategic positioning in terms of the future enabling metals you produce. For instance, it recently guided for increased copper production from your new mine in Peru and partnering to support green steel development. Uh, please walk us through some of the key strategic initiatives the company is undertaking to take advantage of the energy revolution and net zero carbon emission goals? Yeah, maybe if I start, I'll give you 30 seconds on our strategy. We see ourselves as a material solutions company. And that is, we look at the world, what it requires, and try and make sure we're delivering raw materials in terms of driving where the world or supporting where the world's going in terms of change. We look at quality of assets in those commodities in which we work. So it's not simply about trying to pick a winner in a commodity. It's more about quality of assets, making sure the cost structures are right, and then doing really well with good assets. But at the same time, we're keeping an eye on the way the world is going. So energy transition, climate change, energy transition, uh, circular economy, major technical changes, all these things feed into the way we think about setting up the portfolio. So today, 85% of the commodities in which we operate, we call future-facing commodities. They either support these big or mega 
trends that we see on a global basis, or they're playing into the consumer space like diamonds, or with Metco, it's a really important metal in terms of the transition from current steel technologies to green technology, which is hydrogen, but we're also investing in hydrogen. So a really big push, and we've been shaping the portfolio over the last nine or 10 years. And I think unlike some who are sort of more concentrated in one or two or three commodities, We've got a much broader suite of commodities. We've got a great suite of assets, which allows us to allocate our capital, I think, a little more wisely and effectively. And in fact, if you look at our returns over the last nine years, we've outperformed our major competitors. So I think the proof has been in the pudding. And we think for the next 10 years, we are really well positioned for growth as well. That segues nicely into my next question. So Anglo-American has in recent months communicated its strategic growth goal of 35% over the next decade at an attractive 50% margin. Please walk us through the key catalysts on the road to meeting these goals. Okay, so as I said, we focused on high quality assets that have scale and also optionality in the way you operate and improve your cost structures. And so continuing the improvement journey on the assets we have, about 35 assets, is the first step. So new technologies, better recoveries, new ways of producing more with less capital, all those things feed into growth and improvement. That's a starting point, helping do better or doing better with what we've got, first step. Secondly, we've got a great portfolio of new growth options. So our Kiveco project in Peru will add 10% top line growth to the company, very low operating costs, very good margins. So the growth that we're introducing is also very low operating costs. So it continues to help us improve our margins. And we've got Kiveco, we've just announced uh, the Aquila mine in Australia has been commissioned on time and on budget. Uh, new big ship in uh, the Namibian diamonds area, that's another addition. We've got the Woodsmith project, which is polyhalite, and we've got incremental growth opportunities in our big projects, Coluasi in copper, Los Bronces in copper, both in Chile. And we've got other incremental projects in iron ore that can all grow and continue to enhance the portfolio over the next 10 years. So what differentiates us is the breadth of our exposure to future-facing commodities. It also is about the quality of the assets and the growth opportunities we have. So the next 10 years has been mapped out and we're already thinking about the platforms for 2040. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And then when it comes to climate change, uh, how is Anglo-American setting itself apart from the competition? So we've thought long and hard about our transition. And earlier I talked about innovation and technology. We see a transition from traditional fossil fuels and the older fuel types to the new technologies is both an opportunity to improve our environmental credentials and reduce our operating costs to be more competitive. So already today, we will have, and it's in process now, all of our South American assets on renewable input supply on energy to those operations. Now, we're still using diesel fuel in the operations, but what we're also then looking at is using solar, wind power or hydropower to then create hydrogen and use batteries. So we've got a, a, a hydrogen a battery hybrid truck that we've built and we're trialing in South Africa. So we can then replace the diesel we're using. So we'll have renewables in, 
then we'll substantially change the energy mix inside the mine perimeter. So ultimately we achieve carbon neutrality on at least eight of our operating assets by 2030, and we'll have the whole business carbon neutral by 2040. So it's a total strategy. The third leg is working with governments to actually change their grid system so they can provide renewable energy across the field. So for example, in South Africa, we've put to them a strategy for wind farms in the West, wind farms in the east, and these are on the coast where we've got high wind. In the north, we're looking at uh, solar arrays. And inside our mines, we have old mines that have now filled with water, and we can use solar power to fuel our operations or drive our operations. And during the day when we've got more capacity, we can pump the water out of the underground mines into a dam and then let it run back at night. And so we've created a battery out of an old flooded underground mine. So we're now putting to use in an environmentally uh, sensitive way the old mines that have been banded over the years that have got water. So we're thinking about how we use the resources we have to create smaller footprints in terms of energy use, water consumption, and our physical footprints in the operation. Absolutely. So that also segues into the use of PGMs, which is a major contributor to your revenue stream. How is the emergence of commercial hydrogen fuel cell powered vehicles impacting your strategy? And do you see hydrogen playing a critical role in growing PGM demand going forward? Yeah, I think, I think we've got to look at hydrogen in two parts. And many would say there's a few other elements, but if I keep it direct for this conversation, hydrogen provides us with a way to store and use energy in mobile applications. So a hydrogen cell, a bit like a, a natural gas cylinder in your car, hydrogen can be used the same way. So there are really smart ways of using hydrogen in the transportation space. So you're seeing trains, commercial vehicles, trucks, where you can fuel a vehicle once over 24 hours because the range you get with hydrogen is quite extended compared to a battery and you don't have the weight of a battery so it's a more efficient use of energy but we don't have large-scale hydrogen production on a global basis so what we've said is the way to harness hydrogen today is look at renewable input use the renewable energy no carbon make to make hydrogen and then use the hydrogen to replace diesel in your trucks and that gives us a, a virtuous circle now that use of hydrogen requires platinum and palladium to be a catalyst, more so the platinum uh, and iridium as a catalyst to convert or to, to create the hydrogen from electrolysis of water. And so that will provide us with a demand increase of probably 10 to 20% by 2030. But the bigger game is when we see large-scale investment in primary hydrogen production which is on a much bigger scale, but that won't come until 2035, 2040. So some incremental additions, 10 to 20% in scale to 2030, the big game changes occur through the 2030s as we start to look for larger scale replacements for fossil fuels and other energy supplies. So we're playing the mm. long game in PGMs. We've got lots of other industrial applications. So how do we keep improving the use in those industrial applications that get ready for the use in the hydrogen industry, which I think really takes off by 2035. So the groundwork is being laid at the moment with the with the emergence of the electric vehicle and essentially hydrogen fuel powered vehicles will be using the same kind of electric chassis. It's just a different power provider. 
Yeah, I, I think the other thing we haven't spoken, people talk about the hydrogen truck, it's actually a hydrogen battery truck. So we've got the best of both worlds. So we've got Mr. Elon Musk on one side and Mr. Hydrogen, whoever, Miss or Miss Hydrogen, <laughs> Miss Hydrogen, whoever that may be, on the other side. We're bringing both those technologies because they have different characteristics in terms of energy density and use going uphill or downhill. And so by marrying those in an appropriate way, we get the most efficient vehicle for its application in the mine. That's why what we're doing is really unique and quite, we think, revolutionary in terms of vehicles and application, which we think has a much broader application. So we're very excited with the work that's mm. been done. So resource development is one aspect of what you invest in, but then investing in new technologies is another key piece to, to the company's success, right? Well, absolutely. So if you go back 100 years, and Sudbury's a great case in point, the amount of material we had to move and the energy we used we're using 16 times the energy. We're moving 16 times the amount of material compared to 100 years ago to produce a pound of copper. So today we look at money and say, you know, we can't just keep going up that energy consumption curve and big footprints. We've got to be more precise. We've got to think about smarter ways of doing things. So by 2030, we will have reduced the energy intensity of our operations by 30%. So of that 16, well, I've taken five points back off that and start turning the clock back. We're also going to use half the water. So we're using twice the amount of water compared to 100 years ago. We're going to turn that back to 100 years by being more efficient in our processes. And for us, doing those sorts of things also improves your competitive cost position. So we've industrialized our operating processes. So we've thought more like industrialists, auto manufacturers, those type of very efficient operating processes where they really do compete tooth and nail. We've applied that to our processes in mining and we're introducing new technologies to try and get ourselves ahead of our competitors much more quickly so that we're producing those margins and the better than 50% margin includes those types of technologies and these new operating processes as well. By the way, some of these new operating processes we've been implementing in the last nine years we did a lot of work in Sudbury, in Canada, developing these processes around the Intel operations in Sudbury. Wonderful. So I'd like to take a minute to just stand still at a few of the company's key commodities. Just earlier, you mentioned that diamonds have shown a, a recovery in prices since the uh, previous reporting period. Can you please elaborate a little bit more about what is driving that price increase and how the company is positioning to leverage value off of that? Okay, so I think first we've been investing in marketing diamonds at a generic level, so encouraging demand on a global basis. And with a, a growing middle class, growth in demand for diamonds is around 2 or 3% per year. So that's the first step. So making sure that we're presenting the diamond story and, and making sure people understand the emotional attachment, how rare a diamond is, what it says about a relationship, that's been really important. Second, the big challenge we have, because there's not been much exploration and new discovery, the supply of diamonds is getting tougher. So what was a rare product is becoming even rarer. And so demand, supply falling away, tends to impact prices. Now, the other thing we're doing is we've spent and invested a lot of money in marketing and marketing to various consumer groups, age groups, 
um, women and men in different ways, uh, singles, married couples, partners of all shapes and sizes. And that differentiated marketing is also having a very positive effect. So we've seen a, a 30% increase in the last 14 or 15 months, and it's a combination of all of those dynamics. So I'm, I'm very optimistic about diamonds going forward. Maybe we won't get another 30% in the next 15, 18 months. We certainly don't want to impact demand for the product, but given the, the products are becoming even rarer, we still think the prognosis is pretty good, but you've got to get in there. You've got to market your product. You've got to do the best you can. And I think we're doing a lot better on that front these days. Mm. And laboratory grown diamonds are not taking the, you know, your, your lunch at this point. No, we don't think so. Now we don't forget. We're also a lab grown diamond producer with our light box product. Now we are one of the largest producers of industrial diamonds in the world for industrial applications. Lab grown takes that, technology which we've developed and there are others with different technologies but we see those products developed in a lab they're all the same nothing different where a natural diamond everyone is unique it has its own fingerprint and we think that the lab grown products are more a fashion accessory fun not as expensive whereas the natural product is the real deal and if you're buying something for a partner whoever they may be if you want to say something about the nature of the relationship and the new unique relationship and bond you have, then it's a natural. If you want to have fun, buy stuff for, for uh, fashion accessories, there's about a 70% difference in the price. And that reflects the, the nature of the product, where it's come from and how rare the products are. All right. Quickly, let's talk about copper. Some Analysts have in recent weeks mentioned that they believe copper might be headed to a super cycle territory in the medium term from about 2025. Do you share those sentiments? Look, I think the world is short copper. And so from my perspective, that suggests prices will be strong. I think we've always got to be a little bit careful that if it gets too strong, then substitution will likely occur. But at the moment, at $4.50, whatever it is, I still see potential upside if demand keeps growing. I don't think people fully understand how much copper we're going to need in the energy transition. And therefore, I'm not seeing enough copper being developed. And with that, I would expect copper to continue to be strong. We need governments, we need communities, we need miners to get together and work out how we can improve some of these projects to fill that demand. If not, we won't have enough materials to actually manage the energy transition or there will be substitutes which may not be as efficient so it's in everyone's interest to try and get that balance right but uh, all in all with all of that copper looks strong and then uh, let's look at the woodsmith polyhalite fertilizer project it's another key growth element in your strategy let's talk about why fertilizer is of interest at the moment and what is the latest update from the uh, project, uh, I see you've also rejected the leadership recently. Um, what does the new leadership bring to the table regarding that project? Okay, so firstly, the concept. The polyhalite means multiple salts. So the product is quite different. It's not just a, a phosphate or a, a sort of standard product that we know today. And, you know, obviously Canada's been very active in those markets. This has got multiple nutrients and it's got very low salt, and the carbon footprint is extremely low. So this is really unique. So we think this product plays into the market across 
all of the major global, both bulk markets and high quality crop markets. So it's quite unique, very low cost because we can, we can mine it using bulk methods and we don't have all the downstream processing that you go through with potash and other products. So we think it's more environmentally friendly and it also helps encourage soil health because it's, a, it's a, an organic product that, that will, if you're using this product, then you can classify your products as organic because it's a run of mine, not significant downstream processing and very small carbon footprint. So we think it's low cost, highly differentiated as a product. And since we bought the asset, the product is trading at about 60 to 70% higher price as people start to recognise its potential. Now, mm. we're going to have to grow the market, but we've got the scale of deposit. We've got the ability to grow that. And so for us, we think it's a 15-year asset, very low cost, high value, and plays into a more environmental world, particularly in terms of the agricultural sector, because we need to see better productivities in agriculture because we can't keep giving over land from agriculture and taking forests down and reducing our, our ability to absorb carbon. We've got to get higher productivity from the land we have, and this is the sort of product that makes a real difference in so many different ways. So we think it's a great place to be. So if I'm just understanding this correctly, are you inferring that the polyhalite is in fact a more desirable product than potash in terms of you know meeting ESG and all kinds of sustainability goals? Absolutely. However, mm. I'm not being critical of potash. What I'm saying, this is a product that can be blended with potash because it's got low salt and it's got other nutrient uh, characteristics that we think help improve the overall use of fertilizers in a number of applications. So again, potash has its uses, very important in terms of markets, but this is very different. It has potassium, as does potash, not as much, but we have other nutrients that means that we're creating more value in other ways. We've also got very low salt and other physical characteristics that are desirable. And so for us, it becomes an important nutrient consideration for the farmer that really is looking at improving product yield and doing it in an environmentally friendly way. All right, that's very interesting. Okay, and another big topic, uh, ESG, that's certainly an investor hot topic at the moment. Can you please share some key insights from Anglo's journey on ESG? As follow-ups to that question, uh, what comes after ESG in your mind? And also, um, yeah, how does ESG indeed help a top-tier company such as Anglo's create more value for shareholders? Yeah, ESG, uh, unfortunately, when you ask people what does ESG mean, there's not a lot who actually know. So if I sort of break it down into how we think about its components. So firstly, safety. Are you looking after your employees? Are you looking after the general public? In the last 15 years, we've reduced our accident rates and, in fact, our fatal injury rate, because we had significant incidents in Africa in particular, by 99%. So we've made significant improvement, sorry, I should say 98.5%. So we've made significant improvement in our safety performance. And we had one fatal incident last year, which is clearly one too many, but seven years ago, we had 15. And so we're continuing on that journey. Health incidents, seven years ago, we lost a thousand people to HIV. Last year, one. So 
our responsibilities in helping employees look after themselves and make sure their health is being looked after is absolutely critical. Third, environmental. Our environmental incidents are down 95%. So we're looking after our communities and looking and doing the right thing in those communities. In terms of social complaints, we're down 90%. And since COVID, we've had no complaints for the last two years, and these are we, we level them, uh, on the basis that we've been working with our communities and supporting our communities, keeping safe in terms of COVID, doing a whole range of things in those communities and with our communities. So it means, you know, for me, ESG is about being a responsible corporate citizen. And when you look at the G part, which is governance, it's about transparency, making sure you're part of the anti-slavery movement, making sure your supply chains are properly managed and your product is being delivered in an appropriate way, you're ethical. All of those things for us are core to who we are and it's about being part or it's being part of it. It is about... ESG being part of everything you do, not something separate. Uh, and then in your view, what comes after ESG? Well, I think it's about responsible being a responsible corporate citizen. And so for us, it's about being a trusted member of the community. And remember, with bankers, the mining leadership, global mining leadership has ranked at the bottom of the totem pole in terms of business and community leaders. The real measure for us is when leaders of our industry are at the top of that curve because people understand the contribution we make to society in mining. And the simple way to put it is, we provide the raw materials that make the world work. If you look at the room that you're sitting in, everything's come from mining or it's grown. Mm -hmm. And then helping people understand our role in society and making sure we're doing our work in a responsible way so that whether it's the Pope, whether it's the Archbishop of Canterbury, whether it's the Prime Minister of Canada saying, these people are doing the right thing and we understand and value their role in society. Our job won't be done. And of course, it will never be done because we always want to be better. Okay. So finally, let's just look at COVID and the lasting impact. Would you share some of your thoughts on how the pandemic might continue to affect mineral supply chains the world over? And perhaps as a second part, um, any thoughts to share on COVID's impact going forward on the industry? Firstly, there's no doubt 2020, 2021 seriously affected. Probably in our 2021, it's about 5% impact in our production. On a look-forward basis, it's probably down near 2 or 3% because of the new processes. But I think we're going from pandemic to being endemic. If you've been vaccinated, then the risk of COVID is certainly probably not as low as flu, but it's in that range. If you haven't been vaccinated, then you can dial up your risk five times in terms of being seriously ill. So we encourage everyone to be vaccinated. We would hope that if everyone gets vaccinated, let's say by the end of the year, then we will be talking about COVID in the same way we talk about the flu. That's an oversimplification, but that's the key. Everything we're doing is trying to get us there. With that in mind, we still think there's potential for other things to impact because of global movement of people and the way we all work. So we've got to work out how to do with things, these things in a more effective way. But we think by the end of 22, we can move forward and we'll be managing those issues in COVID and it won't be the type of issue that it has been the last two or three years. But I think it does alert us to the fact that, that things are very fragile that we need to look after each other and we need to work out how to deal with these things in a much much more effective way. So big issue, but for us, we've had to go out to the communities and what we've said is this is not a work issue, this is a community issue, we're part of the community, what can we do with our communities 
keeping water to supply, energy supply, making sure people fed. In many cases, we've had to deliver thousands of food packs to local communities that couldn't get food because transport lines have stopped. So understanding how we could impact that whole infrastructure and integrated supply chain has been really important to us. And I still think we're recovering that and probably take another 12 months for those supply chains to recover. But today, mm. we've been pretty resilient. We've been able to manage the situation. We'll continue to improve. So that's been a whirlwind journey through your world. We've almost reached the end of our session. Perhaps I'll just throw it open to you finally. Is there perhaps any other topic or point that you'd like to raise uh, that I've not specifically asked you about that's pertinent to the company's performance uh, going this uh, forward this year? Look, yeah, when we reflect on this year's performance and when you reflect on an annual set of numbers, I think sometimes you've got to look in broader context. For us, I can't obviously forecast what numbers we'll present year-end, but it's very clear uh, that we've had a pretty impressive year. We were already at or about a record annual performance at the half year, believe it or not, so that tells you how uh, significant the year has been, but it's been a journey. Uh, the last nine years, as I said, we've made significant ground in all of our sustainability metrics. We've doubled productivity. We've reduced our operating costs in real terms by more than 50%. But most importantly, in defining a purpose for the organisation, and that is to reimagine mining to improve people's lives, it means that we're touching every part of the business and looking how we can create partnerships, whether it's in the community, whether it's with employees, whether it's with governments, whether it's a whole range of stakeholders, including our most critical NGOs. At the end of the day, if we can create partnerships and an understanding of what we do, how we can do what we do better, then for us, that's the key, in my view, to creating a resilient organisation, an organisation that can deliver sustainability. And as of the last nine years, we've been the best performer as measured by total shareholder return, and in my view, that's just one metric, but it's all the other metrics that I talk about and the measures that go in to make up that number and to support that on a sustainable basis. And I think that's what has differentiated us and will differentiate us for the next 10 to 20 years. Excellent points. Well, thank you very much, Mark Giudifani, CEO of Anglo-American PLC. Thanks, Henry. Cheers. So thank you once again for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast in these truly historic times. Hopefully things do improve for everybody. It'd be a shame after this horrible pandemic ending that dark clouds showed up on the horizon. So I hope you enjoy your week, make the most of it, and uh, let's look forward to hopefully, fingers crossed, a very nice summer. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.